the Going West Writers Festival and Auckland Libraries bring you highlights from the 2018 Going West Writers Festival. This session was titled Ink and Blood. C.K. Stead and Charlotte Grimshaw are two of this country's leading writers. Their most recent novels range around Europe, exploring the complexity of modern life. They are father and daughter, with a relationship that can't help being informed by their shared literary persuasion. Interviewer Steve Braunius talks with Carl and Charlotte about their novels, their writing lives, and what it means to be part of a literary family. Kia ora koutou. Welcome to those of you that are just arriving for our final session of the day. We have Te Waituhi Me Te Toto, Ink and Blood, with CK Stead and Charlotte Grimshaw, and they will be talking to Steve Braunius. This session has been brought to you with the kind support of Sawprint, who does our hard copy program and supports our festival. So thank you very much, and let's welcome Steve, CK Stead, and Charlotte Grimshaw to the stage. Okay, uh, hello everybody, uh, and thank you for coming to this session at Going West, starring novelists and urban correspondents C.K. Stead and Charlotte Grimshaw, who I gather might actually be related. My name is Steve Braunius, and I operate as a kind of family friend of Carl and Charlotte, but also as a spy. I've kept a close watch on the two of them over the years, and taken note of some very deep similarities, e.g. They both have a strong tribal sense of us and them, of circling the wagons, of issuing proclamations that you're either on their side or you can go to hell. <laughs> but their artistic temperaments, I think, are utterly dissimilar. One patient and almost serene, the other more given to experiment and risk. You might be able to tell which is which I over can't. the next hour. But right now is a fascinating point to compare and contrast father and daughter because their latest novels have really striking parallels. Both depart New Zealand and take on modern settings in Europe against a tense, seething background of global terrorism and the familiar post 9-11 dread. Um, the, 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 oh. Both have the Charlie Hebdo bombing on their minds and they both worry a lot about what fiction means in this day and age. C.K. Stead's Necessary Angel is set in Paris and most everyone in it is a petite bourgeoisie employed in the liberal arts. The central character is Max, a New Zealand academic whose wife has consigned him to the basement. This in turn becomes the setting for really quite careless assignations with women who seem to find him irresistibly attractive. As Stephen Stratford wrote in his admiring listener review, this is Steadland. Charlotte Grimshaw's Mazarine travels from beautiful Teatatu to grimy old London and haunted Buenos Aires. The central character, Francis, is an Auckland writer 
searching for her apparently missing daughter. She's also searching for the truth about her family, and along the way she meets a woman who she finds irresistibly attractive. Charlotte Graham McLean, her admiring spin-off review, described Mazarine as Gone Girl paired with fem female sexual awakening. Let's go to work on these two books and these two authors. But first, can I ask you to warmly welcome C.K. Stead and Charlotte Grimshaw. Well, we're here because you're a father and daughter, and so I want to ask you a couple of questions about family. Um, Carl, to you first. I, I, I've been thinking, you know, that uh, Tolstoy made have, might have had it a slightly around the wrong way, that uh, I think unhappy families are very much alike, that there's a narrow range of miseries, and they all respond to them and collapse in much the same goddamned way. However, happy families... Now, there's an infinite variety for you, I think. And, Carl, uh, the Stead family, uh, raising three young kids, seemed to be very happy in one of the happiest, sunniest periods of that childhood, which Charlotte actually uh, writes about in her fiction in Mazarine, is when you were a fellow, uh, the Catherine Mansfield fellow in Monton. Um, can I ask you to describe that and talk about that sunny, beautiful period of family life when you were all in France? Uh, yes, well, it was a uh, wonderful time, and a lot of the family have become obsessed with, with uh, Monton to some extent and have found ways of getting back there. I think all uh, th three of the four of us have been back, sometimes often. Um, the children at the time were aged two, five, and s two, eight. five, and eight. eight. Yeah, and um, uh, and we did the most um, heroic uh, camping trips across northern Italy, as well as being in Monton. And the kids, uh, two of the children, went to school there. And um, and we we lived in a marvelous uh, um, apartment, which was beside an olive grove. So the kids had the olive grove to play in, and the school was just down a track under the railway line and uh, the track took them to their own school. So it was idyllic. And so when I got to chapter two of Mazarine and read that part which um, describes the olive grove and um, the, the waft of dog shit um, uh, and, and the way uh, the narrator, Francis, of the novel explains that for her the waft... The, the smell of dog shit is somehow romantic because it makes her think of the olive grove and it makes her think of the old town of Monton. It's nostalgic. Nostalgic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yes, it was a very a very um, rich experience, yeah. You look back on that very tenderly, don't you? Very tenderly, yes, yes. The problem, it seems to me, with children is that they grow up. That is a problem, yeah. <laughs> we weren't able to do anything about that. We tried, but... What's it, what's it been like, Carl, having uh, one of these children become a very well-known, a very established and quite brilliant writer um, and reading her work? What, is, what has that been like for you, Carl? Well, it's, um, it's very rewarding. Um, I just read you a thing which I printed out because I thought it, it could be relevant. It's quite short. 
Um, but I was reflecting, this is a memoir I'm writing and it covers this period as well. And, and at this point I stop and look at the children and reflect on, on what they were at that time. And I say, what struck me often observing our children on these trips was how much that was in each character sprang from the particular mix of elements from the gene pool. So long as each received basic nurturing and security, the character formed itself on its own terms and each was unique. And I describe each of them, and this is what I say about Charlotte. Charlotte, who also had Kay's beauty, had keen intelligence. They would, they would all be clever, articulate, verbally confident and was the one with the writing gene, the ability to tell a story, get it right, order it, make it clear, together with a spirit of high comedy and finely tuned powers to invent and believe in her invention, which ultimately would exceed my own. Uh, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> you've been reading Mazarin, haven't you? You've read it twice, I think? Yeah, I've read it three times, actually. Three. Yeah. Well, fic fic fiction, of course, is always fiction, and it would be uh, crass to reduce it to uh, biography and what's real. But what did you think about reading the portrait of the family in Mazarin, Carl? Because there are definite, uh, if I may say, parallels between the author's uh, family, your family, that is, and the one in the book. Well, I, I hoped it was fiction. I thought it was <laughs> fiction. Did I certainly see, don't think I'm the judge. You don't see any similarities? Well, there, there are always similarities, but there's similarities and differences, and I know what's similar and I know what's different, but nobody else knows as well as a member of the family knows. What's and even the fam members of the family might disagree about that as well. So um, all, all I can say is... Um, it's not a portrait of the family, and yet there are elements of the family there. That's how I see it, and that's how it ought to be with a work of fiction. That's, that's how fiction works, and that's how fiction writers work. They draw on reality, but they're absolutely selective, and the, 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 what determines what goes in and what doesn't go in is not truth. What's, what determines it is the story. There's a marvellous thing about the story in, in the Nazarene itself. Where, where Francis says something about the, the power of the story. Um, shall I read that as well? Yeah, go for it. I'm standing in for Charlotte at the yeah, moment. <laughs> Charlotte actually doesn't get to say anything. No, no, I'm just a prop. <laughs> I, will, I will shut up. I'm ready to shut up at any moment if I don't arrive at the right page. If it isn't 272, I'll forget it. Um, it's not 272. So well, we'll forget it. Yeah. Um, Charlotte, is he correct uh, when he says that uh, this is this is all it is is fiction, and that there are some similarities? Do you prepare to go further than that? Uh, well, I mean, this is it's very tricky. I mean, to be in, you know, um, I mean, there's, I think there were sort of two parts to your question. You know, one is what was it a rich and terrific childhood, particularly in Monton? Yes, it was. Um, on the other hand. The childhood, my childhood, is a sort of mystery to me in some ways, and so I was wanting to explore that because, for whatever reason, for various reasons, um, I, I felt that that there was a sort of um, sense in which um, 
I, I've often in my life, um, you know, because Carl's a writer, been asked to comment, you know, what was it like growing up with a uh, father who's a writer? And I would always give this, this sort of standard reply, you know, that it was wonderful. An official version. Yeah, and then I suddenly thought, well, actually, what was it really like? And it, of course it was way more complicated because life's way more complicated. I mean, nobody has a wonderful childhood necessarily. So, I mean, um, but it, it is true, it is absolutely true that, with, that it is fiction and that, of course, you're using your own material and your own experiences all the time. But um, really, the, the family in Mazarine is... is is, you know, is, is nothing in a way like, you know, what, what, what my childhood was really. Um, of course, my childhood was much worse. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, I mean, you, you know. So, yeah. um, we've never actually told you that you were adopted, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we I, never got I around knew, to that. Yeah, you see, I, I arrived at that through the fiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, the, you know, everything that was just said is true. On the other hand, of course, um, I, I also feel that, you know, there, there is an official, official family version, an official family narrative, and because I was interested in um, the wider, you know, my wider preoccupations are the age of Trump, the age of fake news, official narrative, um, those kinds of things, I wanted to have the, you know, the microcosm of the family, um, you know, which I, I had the idea that a family can be a regime and that you can have, you know, you can have the official line of the regime and you can have, a, have the odd dissident in the family. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, you know, that, and then in the fiction I, I go wider and, and th you know, and think in terms of, you know, a, a, a state regime, so... Well, the point of a regime is that it does not tolerate questioning. It, it doesn't tolerate questioning, it doesn't tolerate truth, it has an official narrative, yeah. Um, and it's, is, and um, it's savage with dissent. There are two points in the novel, <laughs> 262 and 74, where Frances either refers to herself or is referred to as the un... Um, the unstable, not unstable, the, the, the narrator you can't the trust, the untrustworthy, the unreliable, unreliable narrator. narrator. Yeah. So for the reader, there is a kind of um, a let-out clause there that uh, you may believe it or you don't have to believe it because there is in the novel itself, um, your, uh, there is permission to think that when doubts are cast on Francis's account uh, that's that, that's legitimate to doubt them, yeah. Because, because in the, a way, the narrative itself doubts them, and even Francis doubts them. Well, because the book is actually, while it, the whole point <coughs> is for it to be a page-turning, you know, and it is read. It's about what is fiction yeah. and what is fact. Yeah. So but it's also a. Um, it's like a thriller in that you you know there's a question there. What has happened to Maya, and the. Um, Francis and then Francis and Mazarin are in pursuit of the answer to this question, and so in a way you do read it as a thriller. But all the reviews I've read, I haven't read many, have fo focused on that. But there is also the fact that this is um, a love story. I mean, it's yeah. a love story between Francis and Mazarin, and I think it's a it's a very beautiful love story between Thanks. between. Uh, 
Mazarin, who is, you know, a sort of committed lesbian, and Francis, who is is straight, so to speak, but falls in love with this this um, lesbian person. And I think that aspect of the story really is, it's not what carries you along, but it's a, it's very beautiful, a beautiful piece of writing. Well, it's a, it's a rich layered novel, and there are all these different things going on, mm. including um, this focus on the family, to return it to <clears throat> that point. One of the other striking similarities I find with both of you is that you're both really marvellously clear-eyed critics and that uh, your reviewing has been among some of the finest writing both of you uh, have produced. Um, Charlotte, uh, the best review, in fact, I think I've read in the media this year, in the literary media, is your one in Landfall of the uh, novel The Wish Child by Catherine Chidgett. And there's a really sort of breathtaking point in that review where you uh, uh, hit the fifth wall, so to speak, and you go beyond reviewing and you write, just parting the curtains now, I grew up in a family home so stressful that I emerged from it chaotic. Could you expand on that, <laughs> please? Oh my God, you're just determined to put me on the spot. Um, yes, I did write that. I, the, there was a point to that, which was that Catherine Chidgey's uh, novel, which I really um, found fascinating and is worth, worth reading, although it's quite it's strange, but it's really interesting. The point of it is that it's a, it's very, very autobiographical and it's sort of a, the selfie fiction thing. So I thought, well, can I do it? Shall I do a selfie review, you know, if it's the age of the selfie? I mean, there was a point to that. I didn't just suddenly burst into, you know, now it's all about me. Um, but, yeah, so what was... So does that answer Could your you question? Could you expand upon this chaos? <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, if I was just... She was the chaos. Yeah, see, see yeah. <laughs> Impossible. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that, um, that that's just the case. I mean that it was that yeah it was quite quite a quite a um, it was sort of a bit like the Trump White House perhaps. Are you Trump? No, I'm not Trump. <laughs> no, no. It was. I think what I was trying to say was that it was quite a stressful house to grow up in, um, and for various reasons and. Um, you know, Carl would say that I was I was the chaos. Um, he did say that. He did say that. Just now. Just yeah. <laughs> I just thought and of it all my life. <laughs> I had to say it. Yeah, and but I think probably what I thought was that when you have your own children, you you realise what is the you know you 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 get to do it yourself, and and I sort of think um, that if I was the chaos, you know, somebody was setting the, the chaotic tone. Um, you know, so, <laughs> and, and I mean, I, d I just think that's an interesting detail, you know, I mean, I'm not being, you know, bitter or trying to be controversial or anything, but I just think that's sort of interesting because I've never allowed myself to say that in public before. Can I just read a little bit at the end of the bit <laughs> I read about them as children? It Please. finishes, there was a minimum of piety among us, tears, but not too many, shouting, but not too much, and endless jokes what a pleasure they were, how rewarding and enriching, how we loved them. 
Yes, I, I've got a passage here which says I fucking hated the whole lot of it. But, um, <laughs> no. No, I mean, um, life is complicated. Life is complicated. Um, but life is complicated. I, I, I love the way in Mazarin how you work in the uh, family as part of this novel, which, as Charlotte Graham McClay, uh, I thought very excellently described as part uh, Gone Girl and, and other elements too. Um, but the setting is absolutely vital, isn't it? Um, and you are very interested in this whole post-truth thing. Um, in fact, indeed, you've just come back from the States yes, um, yeah. and filed a remarkable piece on, on it this week in the, uh, the spin-off. Um, what then do you think of uh, fiction and, and its relationship in a time where we seem to be living our, our, our public lives in a fictional way, where whatever Trump says is, 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 is true is usually false? Yeah, well, I think um, that there's a lot of really interesting fiction being written in response to the time. Um, you know, there's a lot. Of, there's the Kanausgard phenomenon of um, you know we're all um, we're all sort of exposing ourselves online. Um, I'm not literally exposing ourselves, um, but I mean we're all talking about ourselves endlessly online, and there's a whole sort of opening up of um, you know the sense that it's, that autobiography is the way. You know, to express yourself, and 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 the you know that the, the story is dead, and um, the, and that sort of it, which is a sort of a fashion and a trend, but it, it it's directly related to the internet and Facebook and mm. and self exposure and all that. Well, it's more but, sort of official versions, isn't it? I mean, the way people write about themselves on on Facebook, particularly Twitter, perhaps, is a, is an approved version of themselves. Do you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's what—that's the problem with Twitter is who you know who writes with any kind of frankness or sincerity when they know that it, somebody else is, is listening. You know, um, so there's a there's a kind of a fake news, which is what the Catherine Chidgy review actually was about as well. That there's a sort of fake news element to everything, and yet we're convincing ourselves that it's the age of autobi autobiography and frankness. So there's a sort of paradox. Because well, when and also even with Knausgaard, when he's he's being completely autobiographical, and yet he's you know he's he's really manufacturing the whole reality in inverted commas, um, and we're man manufacturing our own images, you know, well we're we're you know beautifying our curating our own images and and all that, so. You know, it's complicated. Um, but I think there's a lot of interesting fiction being written in response to, to all this. Mm. It's not as if fiction... I don't think fiction is dead. I just think it's taking interesting new avenues. Well, I, I love the way, too, that you find these beautiful, beautifully evoked settings uh, for this. In fact, um, there's a friend of mine uh, who's joined a book club and were asking for... Recommendations New Zealand fiction, and I uh, recommended you. In fact, I put in my note that I don't think anyone writes about Auckland as well as Charlotte Grimshaw. And, and Carl, this is something we were talking about in the green room before, isn't it? About Charlotte's particular uh, ability, and uh, something that you share too of writing about foreground and background. Do you agree? Yes, I, I think um, we, there are certain similarities between us as novelists, and one is that we're both interested in the larger world, the political world, both whether they're seen as New Zealand or the larger world, um, and that we both, in different fictions, 
have done that, neither of us is really interested in what you might call the, the domestic novel, which focuses on a group of people and what's happening in the world outside is not so important. Um, but I think if you put these two novels together, mine is very specific in terms of time. It, it's 2014, and uh, it begins midsummer. It's very specific, and it goes to January, February 2015 when there was the Charlie Hebdo killings and then the march. And everything in the immediate background in Paris is the political background is there, so you have the the um, president and um, and his problems with his the, the couple of women in his life, which are kind of parallel to the narrative that's going on in the foreground. And then every now and again, the scene widens out to the the larger world beyond. Could so, you could you illustrate that, uh, Carl, with a with a reading from your yeah. from the Necessary Angel? Yeah, I could do that. Um, but I think Charlotte's is, is, in one sense, more contemporary in the sense that it includes this notion of post-truth and it includes um, the, in, the world of the internet far more than mine does. I mean, my people send emails to one another. That's pretty much the limit, you know. Um, um, so this is... Uh, what happens in this bit I'm going to read which will take about five minutes, um, are we all right for time? Yeah, we're good. Is uh, that it's late in the novel, I think it's chapter 11, and um, the so the, a lot has been established, the characters are known, and at the beginning of this chapter, the narrative voice kind of steps back and remind you of what's going on in the larger world in, of this 2014. It's by now it's December. <clears throat> the December wind from the northeast skipped quickly across Scandinavia, treated Stockholm politely as the great and the good gathered there to award this year's Nobel Prize for Literature and hear Patrick Modiano of France say thank you, suggesting that his trade was that of a spy on the conversations of others, and that though the blank page terrified him, the need to speak and be heard was compelling. The same wind skimmed over Germany and seemed to save more than a fair share of unpleasantness to punish the pride of Paris that had gone before the fall of its leaves, already swept away from the tree-lined boulevards and only lingering in the memory of the Luxembourg gardens. In Max's sheltered courtyard, it turned random sniper and picked off one by one the last poor, cringing survivors. But now, by way of substitute or compensating alternative, the Paris trees had taken on lights. All along the Champs-Élysées, they shifted from white to violet to red. The town hall blazed. On the main plaza in front of Notre Dame, an enormous decorated conifer had appeared, a gift from Moscow, a coal of fire perhaps because France, in protest at Russia's military activities in the Ukraine, was delaying delivery of two warships. Nine more grand trees, gift, gifts from France to herself, had been set up in front of the Pantheon, around the Place de l'Opéra and along the Boulevard Haussmann. In fact, in all the deciduous trees of inner Paris, white lights sprang to life along bare branches, while in its 
churches, innumerable versions of the baby, baby Jesus, some white, some black or brown, were visited by three wise men bearing gifts. Indifferent, the same flowed on as it had done before the Christmas festival ever broached its banks or adorned its shores. At the Sorbonne, last classes were given before the break that would begin on 19th December and last until 5th January. And in the world, in Pakistan, the Taliban gunned down 140 children in a school. The Paris cartoonist, Shab, had said, the pen is mightier than the sword of Islam. In principle, maybe, must be, but in the short term, the innocents died. In Washington and Havana, Barack Obama, so this is the picture widening out, you see, before it sort of closes back again on the particular. In Washington and Havana, Barack Obama and Raul Castro announced a rapprochement between their countries, which sent Fox News and the Republican Party into overdrives of outrage. I thought overdrives of outrage would be a great title for something. Um, in Washington, a committee of Democrats had released their findings on the CIA's enhanced interrogations during the last Bush presidency, simulated drownings, anal feeding, locking suspects in coffin-sized boxes for hours and days, hanging them by the wrists for similar periods, or subjecting them to intolerable noise and light. You could review these matters quickly, even the case of the one who died of hypothermia after five days chained to a concrete floor, and dismiss them accepting the assurances that they were not torture, that they had saved lives and cost bin Laden his. Or on the other hand, you could let your imagination linger there. But either way, a short shrug or a lingering wince, what then? This was Paris, or it was London, or New York, Johannesburg, or Sydney, or Auckland. It was December, and rushing on towards Christmas, there were presents to buy and a life to be lived. Maybe there had been unwarranted embraces that had made, your, made you think briefly of Gatsby yearning towards the green light across the water that signalled Daisy and his dream. Maybe, on the other hand, you knew where yearning ended and reality began. Maybe you had been estranged from your spouse and wondered now whether the current improvement was to be confirmed or reversed. Maybe your mad friend, the one you, you had said might be your muse, had stolen your wife's unauthenticated masterwork, and maybe not. And what of Sylvie, the young woman of the expensive shoes and the colourful silk scarves, the intergalactic anxieties and the delicate keyboard fingers? Life, as it always did, went on. Its map was enormous, even infinite. The choice between limit and no limit was yours. Space was vast and time would not wait. So that's a sort of interlude which reminds you of the larger picture and draws you back again at the end there to the particulars and then the novel goes on. Charlotte, could you uh, pass Mazarin over to your daughter, please? The one with the uh, charming family portrait. Uh. <laughs> Is that your copy? No, that's... Oh, no. Mine. <coughs> my turn. Yes, please. My turn. <laughs> um, yeah, this is... Um, in, in the same way, um, the, this passage um, has a sort of widening out, as you were saying. Um, 
my idea was to, I think I said this before, to start with the, sort of the microcosm of the family and widen it out to, to, to the greater concerns. So, um, so there's, there is a sort of similarity there, that's right. If I can find it. Um, this is where my two characters have ended up in Buenos Aires and um, in their hunt for their for the missing their missing uh, family members, um, and they pass the um, protest of the mothers of the disappeared. Who are um, there's the protest against um, that dates back to the military regime when thousands of people were disappeared by the regime and uh, were murdered and were, were never found again. And to this day, there's the, there's the, the protest, it's now the grandmothers of the disappeared. Um, we stopped in a cafe and ate in silence, both of us weary, stumped, unable to decide what our next move should be. I sensed Mazarin was guiltily aware she had more reason to be cheerful than I did. She knew I was on the brink of desolate fury that she'd brought me all the way here, only to find evidence of her child and not mine. I watched people circling a monument to the fallen of the Malvinas War. The women were warily dressed down with no visible jewellery. They wore their backpacks on their chests and scanned the street with watchful looks. There were thieves cunningly dressed as tourists, tourists optimistically disguised as locals. Parts of the city were, city were beautiful, and even the shabby areas had a kind of battered elegance, yet I felt an atmosphere of tension and sadness, perhaps as much to do with the authoritarian history as the poverty, or was the sense of oppressiveness due to my own anxiety. I put the question to Mazarine, who looked relieved that I'd stopped glaring and roused herself, clearing her throat to launch into one of her commentaries. It was a tough society, she said. It had taken her mother time to adjust, at first, she'd stayed only because she was devoted to Raoul. Now she was happy here, although, like many affluent residents, she took holidays in Punta del Este to escape the wearying threat of crime. I thought of the mothers of the disappeared and the oblique connection that we too were mothers of children who were lost. Back out in the streets, following Mazarine through the crowds, I conceived a thread of narrative stretching from the silent treatment to disappearance from the internal regime of families to suppression of truth by the state. And I almost interrupted Mazarin's spiel to burst into a small monologue of my own. I had an idea about fiction being a realm where time was not linear, but rather a place where elements were linked only by ideas. So you could start at one point, Inez's silent treatment, and end up at the protest of the mothers of the disappeared, and none of this had been planned or anticipated, none of it. Long ago, I'd had an idea for a series of books in which the narratives were linked in the shape of a flower with a central point and petals growing off it because stories aren't linear. They don't consist of then and then and then. Life was so complex, though, and the lines of story were so numerous that the flower might come to resemble something deeper and more impenetrable, a labyrinth. I saw then that if I ever wrote my first novel, it would be about women, and I would dedicate it to three women with love, to Maya, to my cousin Aria, and to Mazarine. But what use was this thinking in terms of fiction? This was not a story. Our problems were real. I stayed silent and followed my guide. The mall we'd strayed into was expensive, and I watched Mazarine peering at peso notes, hesitating over the purchase of a small roll. She still had the reflex of caution about money. I elbowed her lightly, put money on the counter, and said I would pay, feeling pleasure in it, wanting to give her things. 
Taking my arm suddenly cheerful, she said, did I tell you about the trip Mama and I took to the jungle? We went to the Iguazu Falls on the border of Argentina and Brazil. In the jungle, there are giant cicadas. They make a noise that sounds like women's voices. It sounds like they're considering you malevolently. They say, see, see, see. There were moments when we forgot why we were there and strolled as frivolously as a couple of tourists. Mazarine pointing out landmarks or sometimes describing criminal trials she participated in back home or telling funny stories about her mother and Raoul. And when she made me laugh, I was brought up short with happiness. But just as quickly, my pleasure in her company could zoom away, leaving me in disbelief how far I'd ended up from my previous notion of myself and always the dizzying hole in the space around me, the absence of Maya. It was a space darkened with guilt. How could I take this wanton pleasure in Mazarine? How could I revel in my new freedom in this exciting expansion of my senses when my girl was lost? Mm. Um, we're just going to wrap things up a little bit. Uh, I, I want to ask you uh, a question here. I've been reading this uh, exhilarating new study uh, of New Zealand literature by John Newton called Hard Frost, and he makes uh, what was to me quite a, a stunning and audacious remark in the opening chapter. He says that as a project, New Zealand literature is dead, it's gone, it's finished, it's over. It's just literature now. And I think reading, uh, listening to your two uh, excerpts from your books, that is going some way towards Newton's remark. Uh, neither of these have provincial New Zealand Settings, they could be written by people anywhere uh, in the world. Charlotte, uh, is New Zealand literature, do you think, in your mind, uh, a passe consideration? Is the world just too interesting? Um, well, um, no. I mean, I, well, I know what he's saying. He's saying that we're, we're all global. Is mm. that what he's saying? I is guess that, so. Yeah. yeah, we're all global now. Um, but the thing is, I mean, I, my, all my sensibility is here, so my whole, you know, my books always start here and often stay here. Um, but yes, I mean, we are all m way more global. We are, um, we can, I mean, I, I often go into a bookshop and wonder why we have to have a New Zealand fiction section, because I sort of think, is that really necessary? Um, and I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, I think in a way that seems wrong. You know, mm. why, why do we have to be sort of segregated into a different section? Um, so, I mean, in terms of um, the, the fact that, that one's interest is global and that we, we always, we're looking outward and all that, yes. But on the other hand, one's, uh, one's love of New Zealand and the New Zealand atmospherics and the scene and everything is absolutely, you know, still there. So in that sense, I'm... I'm only a New Zealand writer. Well, Carl, um, this is merely the latest in our talks over the past few months on your book. This has been like the Necessary Angel tour, <laughs> you and I, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And in each of them, I seem to have sort of given the intimation that I'm trying to kill you off. Yeah. And I often talk about, well, you know, you've been around as long as there's been a New Zealand literature. Yeah. And I kind of get the, trying to hint at you that it's time you shuffled off but glad you're still here, and you refer to your memoir before, which is uh, in the works, yeah. volume two, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, how honest will that be? Um, it's honest in what it tells, but it doesn't tell everything. So... Um, Shifty. 
<laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Uh, no, I, I, not offended by that being called shifty, but um, it, it, I suppose it is shifty, but that's true. I'm, I'm not going to put everything in, um, but I'm going to put in um, a lot and um, make it as interesting as I can. And I want to say something about John Newton. I think he's quite wrong. I have um, a character in one of my novels who's a New Zealander, a novelist. She goes abroad, she's living in England. She publishes a novel which, as it happens, this particular one, has no New Zealand characters. And she's asked, well, is this a New Zealand novel? And she says, yes, it is. And she, they say, well, how can it be a New Zealand novel? It's not about New Zealand, there's no New Zealand characters. She says, because I'm a New Zealander and I wrote it. And I would say the same, wherever I write, whatever I do, it's a New Zealand writer writing because it's our sensibility. We grew up in this space mm. with, the, with the, these skies, these scenes. And it's different, isn't and it? And it's, it's different. different to an English sensibility. Yeah, yeah, different. I, I, There's I, an interesting bit in Mazarin where she, Frances says <laughs> she can't really read, read the English, um, the, the, the posh English she has to, people she has to deal with. She can't really... Uh, interpret what they mean by their various statements. I mean, there is that space. Mm. The you know the closeness of the English language is a kind of illusion in a way. Carl and Carl and Charlotte will be available to talk more about their books and indeed sign copies afterwards um, at uh, the book launch for Carl. He's very prolific. This young man, uh, his latest book, a book of poetry. And I've asked Carl to conclude our session by reading a particular poem from this uh, new collection. And I think it really takes us back full circle to this whole topic today of family and where families begin. Over to you, C.K. Stead. Thank you. Let's get out the right pair of glasses. Okay. It's in a sequence of four poems called Beauty, and this is the one that Steve wants me to read. Okay, this is it. It's called Like a Bird. Like a Bird for Kay. Long ago, remember, when we lived on the beach at Takapuna, a Texan teacher of maths bought a fisherman's dizzy wife for 1,000 pounds a good price, equal to one year's professional salary. All three, the fisherman, the Texan maths man, the wife, were pleased with the deal and partied to celebrate. I recall the fact more clearly than the party. Much wine was drunk, and so soon were the drinkers. There was a moon on the sea, right out to Rangatoto. You were beautiful, and I sang as I could in those days, all the way home, like a bird. <laughs> All families are love stories. Thank you very much. Uh, please join CK Stead at the Auckland University Press book launch next door. Thank you very much. To hear more published tracks from previous years, search Going West on this Auckland Libraries podcast channel. Interested in the history of the festival? 
Auckland Library's Heritage Collections houses the full sound and festival archive since its steam train journey beginnings in 1996. Search Kura Heritage Collections or visit Heritage Collections at the Central City Library or research West in Henderson for access to the collection. Going West Writers Festival 2019 opens on the 6th of September and runs till Sunday the 13th. More information is available at the Going West website, goingwestfest.co.nz.